everyone, this is Tony Holbein. You are listening to the Super Revenue Brothers with Raul and Tony. In this very, very first episode of this podcast, we will talk about five things revenue leaders should definitely know about their business. Watch out, some of these things might be a bit controversial. Enjoy. You and I, how did we actually meet? We kind of, we ran into each other during the whole Project A investment round thing, right? I mean, that was almost a tear for the two of us. Yeah, I think I, I walked into your office just as I did today. You should really do something about your security, by the way. So also today. Uh, 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 that's going to be cut out, but yes. <laughs> I just walked into the office like this. Uh, no, but people are always really busy here. And so then I, I walk in and I meet you somewhere and then we hit it off from there. No, Thanks. exactly. I think the idea was also kind of for this show was actually a lot of stuff is going wrong, especially in Germany. Yes. Yes, we're doing this in English, but it's especially about some of the German stuff, right? And the realization was like, hey, maybe there's a show missing that educates folks a little bit more on this. How should they be running their revenue engine, their funnel, their sales engine? I'm not sure kind of how we want to call it, but at the end of the day... I was like, wow, there's a lot of education missing, actually. And, you know, talking about this a bit more, I think you have you have a book in the works. You know, that, what is it? Talk about it. Uh, I hope it will be a book at some point. But I just really started, I think, even five years ago, actually 10 years ago, when I started my career, just writing stuff down. When I first started, actually, my career, I, wrote, I just wrote down my daily learnings. Yeah. Uh, but that was more as a beginner in working. So how do you make sure that you're heard? How do you make sure that you show up on time and all that stuff? And then I just kept doing that. And periodically, I just write things down. What did I learn? I rework my old frameworks. I add them together with others. And I'm very much about like methodologies and frameworks and stuff that actually I've seen work. And so it, at some point, it dawned on me that maybe that could be a book. And so I think in the last two years, I've sort of tried to push it more into that direction. Mm. I don't know if I'm a good writer, though. <laughs> I think we'll find that out. I think the stuff in there is really helpful. And I really am using that every day with, with yeah. the ventures that we work with. And since you're creating a bunch of content for uh, businesses, especially on the sales and marketing side and actually the CS side as well around, you know, RevOps, sales ops and so forth, we're doing a bunch of that stuff. You and I were thinking, hey, we should be joining forces and kind yeah. of do something together. And then the tier really was, hey, let's start. And you were like, you know what, let's do it in Copenhagen. So that's what we did. So uh, currently we're recording actually out of our uh, wonderful studio here in downtown Copenhagen. Going forward, it's going to be a bit more split. And jumping right into this, We had a couple of cool conversations around what we should be maybe talking about first. We asked a couple of folks around us. You asked your partners and the other folks in the operating team. I brought in some topics from all the customer and the prospect conversation I'm having here on the Growblox side. And I think the first one, and let's see how the title actually ends up being, but the first one is something around five things I wish revenue leaders would know, right? And I think from my perspective, I need to watch out that I'm not trying to be this, uh, you know, all-knowing, arrogant professor that tells everyone how the world should work. So let's let's see how that ends up in the uh, in the end here. But um, maybe you start out, you know, what is your number one thing that you think revenue leaders should know? Yeah, I love that topic, by the way. I just love being disagreeable sometimes. But that's not really because I think that I know it better. I think really that this whole field is, this is such a difficult job that it's really good to be reminded sometimes of how much there is still to do. Yeah. Um, to really not become a victim of your own 
incompetence really mm. which we're all i mean even yeah. if the, even if we're doing a podcast or not there is so much we don't know and there's so much we've never seen and that we're just assuming so i think you have to be very conscious of the dunning kruger effect like your yeah. your own unknowns and so that's why i think it's it's good to be reminded of these things and that's actually really the first thing i would start with so never forget that you know nothing yeah. <laughs> and 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 constantly evolve in your knowledge of the of the topic I had a talk at the Project A Knowledge Conference last year, which was called The Physics of Sales. Mm. And so basically, I spent half an hour giving three pieces of advice, the top three pieces of advice to revenue leaders. And the last one was that you have to become a physicist of your own company. Yeah. And that to, to be a good revenue leader, you have to do two things. Number one is you have to understand the rules of nature, which is so the, the stuff that, that's been found out. Like, what is, what is revenue? How do you calculate yeah. Uh, customer acquisition costs and how do you calculate payback periods and why are these important? So just understand basically the buy the book thing and you have to constantly re-educate yourself on these. And then number two, and this is where most people are stuck already, they just follow some playbook. Mm -hmm. But number two is then become good at applying these to your own planet. Your company is your own planet and it's your job and your duty to apply these things to what you're doing. And basically I gave an example which... <laughs> Uh, I was really not trying to 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 like diminish anything, but there is a notion, for example, by Winning by Design, and they do a lot of great work. But one of the notions that they have, for example, is that ACV should dictate your go-to-market motion. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that that's like it, it's a nice slide to have, but it doesn't really help you when you're a revenue leader of a company because there is much more that goes into it. Obviously, the higher the ACV, the more you can allow to put account executives into it and the more you can allow to put more money into your sales motion. But what if, for example, for some reason, your conversion rates are through the roof? What if your sales cycles are incredibly short? Yeah. So it's not just about average contract value. No, I had that thing happen to me once, by the way. Yeah. That's maybe that's maybe different. No, so I had one thing. So I was the CEO of this company um, and they had uh, 2K, 3K ACVs. So annual contract value of 3K. And we used sales reps for that. And it kind of worked out. And I just sat there and it's like, how the fuck does that actually work? Yeah. Out? And then obviously I had to do, we had like 45% conversion rates and we kind of closed this stuff like really fast, right? So that's why you would probably say like, oh guys, look at sales velocity, you know, look at that uh, metric instead. I do believe though, wh whatever you think about winning by design, I think having an ACV approach to, you know, the different motions you can install, for example, it it works to a large degree, let's just say, with outbound. If you want to run outbound on 2 or 3K a year, I've, you know, I, I've yet to see that thing work out. Let's just say it like that, right? So really kind of uh, you need to pay someone to do it. You won't have great conversion rates. Outbound is typical for having 10 20% conversion rates, rarely higher, which then means you need to book so many more meetings in order to make this whole thing work out which then means you will probably kind of hit a constraint, right? I think on some other motions, a bit more uh, flex, I agree with you, but it is helpful to sometimes also avoid kind of silly mistakes, I think. Yeah, and, and this is the point I'm making. It's a nuanced point. There's a lot of value in understanding that there's a correlation between ACV and your go-to-market motion. Yeah. And this is, what, this is the argument that Winning by Design has put forward, which I very much agree with. And it's your job as a revenue leader to know that that is the case. Mm -hmm. However, you then have to understand your specific case and whether... You should really follow that one slide that tells you after 10,000 contract value, you should put SDRs in place or mm -hmm. not, because that's irrelevant. And I do think that more revenue leaders than not are actually just going by that formula. And that's the mistake I'm seeing. I think a lot of revenue leaders, they're just taking what's there and expanding it, by the way. Yep. So, you know, 
even without much reflection on that. And you know, don't want to, don't want to, you know, piss off anyone here. But it's also to the detriment sometimes of the company. You step into a new company and something is working out, and it's like, ah, you know, I came from this other company. They did outbound. Let's do outbound here, without the realization. Hey, wait a minute. You did outbound for 20k or in 50k enterprise, and now you're stepping into a completely different beast and trying to add this on top without actually understanding why it worked over there and why it doesn't work over here. And that talks a little bit to the, hey, you you just took a spaceship and you went to a new planet. And the laws of physics are different in this new planet, right? Kind of that's the metaphor that you've been drawing on. Uh, but ultimately speaking, kind of that's the that's your that's the number one thing for you, right? Kind of be aware of, be a scientist of your own little planet. Figure out what the uh, laws of nature are, um, and then then stay updated with it and keep challenging it to a degree, right? You'll always find something new out, I guess. Yeah. However, and that shouldn't fall down. Also, constantly re-educate yourself on the overall laws of nature that are just true in general. Yeah. Because those are valuable to know, but then you have to really understand. And this is where most fail, is to understand how this applies to your company. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I like it. I think I think what I don't like about it, so I obviously like it in general, it's kind of this motion between exploration versus exploitation, right? Kind of how much more do I explore and figure out what the you know laws of physics are around here, Versus, okay, fuck all the rest. I know these five things work. Let's keep doing those things, right? Obviously, there's a limit to some of these things in the end. But you want to, especially when you're in a scale-up phase, you want to level that out nicely. You want to be able to, okay, we need to go deeper into this thing and exploit this more and more versus the time you're spending on figuring out, you know, things out freshly and newly and and coming up with new ways of, of seeing the planet, right? So that's, that's I think, what I just would be um, would be conscious about. Yeah. What about you? So my number one is, and there's so many different ways to go about this, but I wish revenue leaders knew, and maybe that extends also to CFOs and CEOs, that quota does not mean revenue. Interesting. Yeah. So what does that mean? I still see it a lot out there, like a lot, a lot. I asked them, so how do you want to grow your revenue? How do you want to build your business? What's the approach? How do you want to go about it? And then the answer is, well, we're going to hire those account executives. We're going to give them each a million and quarter because we have one guy hitting that. And since we hired five of them or 10 of them or 20 of them, we will then be able to grow by 20 million next year. And then, so, I've, so this, I see this a lot and still everywhere. I think some of that is coming from the notion that um, you know, CFOs are sometimes trying to kind of build this model and trying to understand, so how many people do we actually need, right? It kind of goes into this capacity thing. And I think the missing piece to this, this thinking is, okay, now you have a bunch of people that are able to stand on the, you know, on the conveyor belt and in the factory to kind of put the pieces together. Those are your AEs, if you will. But if they're running out of pieces that they need to put together, then the factory will just simply not create more stuff, right? And the big point here that I think, you know, it's at least my number one for people to take away from this is you only need as many AEs as you have opportunities for them to work on. I rarely see companies being constrained by the ability to hire more AEs. I rarely see that. They usually are constrained by the amount of opportunities that they're able to generate that then those account executives can work on. And... You know, this whole thing worked out once upon a time, and in some companies it still does, 
where the AEs are supplying themselves with their own leads and opportunities and closing them, kind of the, the full cycle thing. And if you have something, uh, a system that's neatly contained within this, then yes, you can stack these things on top of each other infinitely and, 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 and it's going to grow, right? But in reality, at least today, in most organizations, you see inbounds coming in that then those AEs are working on. If you hire 20 more AEs, you won't necessarily have 20 times more inbounds. So that's a problem. Or you have a two-step function with an SDR. And if you hire you know, 20 more AEs, you also need to hire a couple of more SDRs. Depends how many you actually need. And having that understanding that it's not actually about the quota, that it's primarily about the opportunities and then secondarily about the ability to work through that, I think that's fundamentally, a lot of people forget about that. Hmm. I, I agree with you, actually. So it, it really is, you have to modulate this whole motion to many more input factors than just AEs. Mm. The one argument you did just make, I would counter, though, is that full cycle sales is actually a very viable approach to sales. Maybe we'll talk about this at a different time, but I do think there is merit to it. I don't think that SDRs and AEs makes no sense, but I do mm. think you should be more sensible about that. And one of the advantages that you just gave is exactly that. Uh, and so depending on which phase you are, for example, when you're more early stage, it might make sense to approach it that way. Yeah. Either way, that's the one thing. The one thing that, you, that just came up to me, and, and this sort of leads into another point I had, is what I see revenue leaders do a lot of times is they're not really good at, or they should be better at also dealing with failure and planning for that as well. So if you're, if you're, let's say your business plan tells you you're going to hire 10 account executives, there's a lot that goes into it. Obviously, when do you hire them? The later you hire them, the, the more difficult it will be to, yeah. to reach the revenue and all that. So that's obvious, but um, account executives really don't always work out. And most business plans I see, the input factors, they sort of have a blended uh, rate of when do you hire them. They have a blended amount of months until they're fully onboarded, however you want to call that number. And then they sort of assume that there's one or two that are better or one or two that are worse. Yeah. My experience doesn't show that. My experience shows that in most companies, one or two AEs are doing most of the heavy lifting and the others are sort of dirtling around with like 40, 50% quota yes. attainment. What I would like, by the way, and I've never found that is, is an actual number that shows how these numbers skew so that you're better at planning that. But in reality, you have to probably, and you also have to keep in mind that a lot of AEs drop out in the first six months even. No, I think when when I look at some of those cases where uh, someone says like, hey, some of my AEs do 300% and some others do 30%, my first question is actually about the opportunity distribution, like number one. I just don't believe in this concept of 10x salespeople. I, I don't know, they're, they're probably out there, but they're not as... It's much more rare, let's just say it like that, than, than you and I would run into this. So what I then usually ask is, okay, what kind of, you know, how many opportunities are each of them getting? Oh, there's a 10x difference between those. Well, that's a hint. And then number two, which I see a lot, and I used it also proactively in managing some of my teams, is there one rep that gets more inbounds than the other? And those are then usually some indicators for, ah, okay, this is going one direction versus the other. And therefore, obviously, kind of the quota attainment is going to be higher, right? And and all of these things, you know, if, even if you think about ramp up, um, usually it also has to do with like, well, how many swings at the plate do I actually fucking get, right? If I'm in ramp up for nine months and the whole organization is already opportunity staffed, guess what? Who's not going to get another opportunity? It's kind of the guy that doesn't know how to do things yet. But how is he or she then going to learn it? And it's like, he won't, she won't. Okay, ramp up failed, right? I see that a lot of time actually. And to a degree, this whole adding more sales reps to your roster 
it will also always pull down your productivity, right? There's some kind of tricks around it, but generally speaking, those are issues people are uh, totally struggling with. But the question is, is that a feature or a bug? So obviously, if you're having salespeople that are performing well, and you know they're a safe bank, you're obviously going to, or a safe bet, you're obviously going to give them the the new leads more mm -hmm. than you would give them to new people. And it's quite hard as an organization to consciously not do that. I would argue, by the way, that a very good approach is to have someone who maybe is not the sales leader to do these things. For example, sales ops, think about that distribution of leads a bit more. That's a different argument, though. But then another is, so you said you don't believe in the 10x uh, salespeople. Mm. I would actually agree with you. I think that um, it's really hard to be 10 times better than somebody else in sales. What I do see a lot, though, is that the failure rate, and that's sort of what I was hinting at before, is much higher than people realize. So mm. what I'm trying to say is I think that the couple that are reaching 200, 300%, that's actually the real number. That's sort of the goal that you should actually attain. And then the others that are reaching 30%, those are the ones that are failing, which are many more than people think. Mm. And so that sort of comes comes out to a blended 100% goal uh, yeah. quota. But I think, and I, I've actually recently done this exercise where we had all the input factors modulated and they had, I think, six salespeople that they wanted to need it to attain quota. And they said, okay, we need to hire seven. I was like, no, probably to get six, you probably need to hire 10 to 12. Mm. So I think it's really, and maybe even more. I would say that at least 50% of salespeople are just not going to work out to many different factors. It could be personal things. It could just be not coming up to speed. It could also be the self-fulfilling prophecy where they just don't get a snowball rolling yeah. because of the reasons you mentioned. It could just be the bad fit with your phase or your product or whatever. Crazy. I've, I've never thought about it as like double up hiring. I probably would have applied a buffer as well, like, 20, 25% on top. So I probably would kind of hire eight, nine people to make six successful. And I think then there's also all kinds of like, how do you kind of tear it out and so forth, right? But uh, interesting. Um, What's your number two? My uh, number two is, it's a bit specific and nerdy. It's that Google paid ads or search paid ads in general has a cap to it. Many, 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 especially early stage teams and founders and revenue leaders, they go to the marketplace, let's call it Google search. They have an ad running there. It works really well for them. They get, you know, good clicks. They get good demos. They get good revenue from Google. And it helps them to get to one, two, three, maybe five million, like really quickly. And they're high-fiving. Everything is great. And then they're doing the big A or the big B or whatever round they're doing. And then they're overlooking the fact that Google in itself is not going to grow with you. Google in itself, the low-hanging fruit, you will have exhausted immediately. And then, you know, because there are only so many people going to Google and searching for something, because there's not more people waking up every morning thinking about wanting to buy your product or wanting to investigate your category. It just doesn't happen unless you have a macro thing kind of happening in the background, like COVID, for example. That, you know, changed a lot of that behavior, but usually you don't have that, right? There are not more people waking up wanting to buy scheduling software for B2Bs or whatever, right? And once you have capped this out, it's going to be nice and stable and, you know, everything is going to be great. But, you know, while it has delivered maybe two or three million in revenue last year, it will only deliver two or three million revenue this year. But you now not only need to grow three million, you need to grow nine million. 
and suddenly Google as a channel is not going to be enough for you anymore. And that realization, just taking that channel and scaling it forward as your expectation, I think that's extremely valuable because it tells you a little bit when you're going to run into the first wall of, oh, fuck, we're not getting more leads that we thought we would actually get. So I think, obvious what you just said, even though it should be repeated, how much do you think you can work, though, on in just improving the market, increasing the market size in general? Mm. So if you're going out there and just creating new categories, and that's obviously an, a big opportunity in itself, how much can you be the driving factor of also increasing the Google search for that or Massive. whatever it is? Massive. So this is then the whole topic of demand generation, right? So how do you build out a category? How do you create demand? And there is a relationship that, you know, really means for you, you can go out, you can generate that demand. What's going to happen though, and demand gen really kind of think about it more as an educational exercise. You're going to educate the market that they have a problem. Yeah? And now someone knows that, oh, I actually have this problem and I know that there's a solution to it, right? They now know this. It doesn't mean that in the second where they see the ad and where it makes click for them in their head that they're going to hit the request demo button. It might mean that, you know, it takes six, nine, 12, 18 months before they come up on that problem actually in their daily life. And it's like, you know what, actually, I know there's some kind of a solution here, right? What's going to happen then though, they either remember you as a brand, you know, likely, unlikely, you need to decide that, or they're going to go to the marketplace and look for you. And that's how you're going to, over time, going to increase that search volume there, but you're not going to increase it by sending more cash to Google. You are going to increase it by spending that cash on, you know, it might be other networks, it might be other things, it might be a podcast, you know, it might be all kinds of different ways. That's how you're going to increase the demand. And some of that demand will find itself through Google search back to you or actually to your competitor. But the realization that Google is capped and it's done and dusted at some point, realizing that, I think that's really important. And if you forget about this, the tricky thing is it will, it might even give you a really nice CAC payback kind of Google, Google search, right? Compared to some of your other channels. And then some smart RevOps guy might say, oh, the CAC payback is six compared to our 18 we have everywhere else. We should be putting more cash into Google search. What's going to happen now is you're going to do that and you're going to eventually hit the 18 CAC payback as the rest, but you probably didn't close a single additional deal from that additional cash yeah. because it's simply capped, right? And having that realization, rather spending that cash some, sorry, somewhere else, I think is extremely crucial. And I feel many revenue leaders don't see it like that. And how dangerous is it to do that? Because obviously you're talking about a staggered effect to what you're doing, where you're capturing the value later on. But so if, if I were mischievous right here, I would say, all right, Tony, go ahead, do that, do that, all that work. Uh, meanwhile, I'll build that tool or sort of another solution to the problem you keep promoting, you keep talking about. And then 12 months later, I'll capture some of that value at a much more efficient rate, capital efficient yeah, yeah. rate than you're doing right now, which basically means that you go right back to maybe a little bit above zero to the growth. So how much are you really capturing of that? And how do you, I think that's an entire episode in itself, but yeah. how do you make it so you also get to capture most of that value that you're, pro, that you're creating right now? So the theory is not saying that I can you know, pragmatically and practical and recite all of that. But the theory is, and this is where this whole category creation bullshit is coming from. They're basically saying, create a problem, build a category around that problem, be the one that's leading the category. And then the theory is that people that are then looking for the category to 70 or 80% will actually immediately go with the category leader. 
So designate yourself as such, right? That still means in a theoretical world that you've created demand that someone else is receiving. As you have more competitors, by the way, they will also create demand that you will be receiving as the category leader, right? So there's there's some back and forth around it. And that's why it's like, that's why everyone is so keen to be the category designer and then category leader and all of that jazz. That's the reason, right? Do you want to basically be saying not, hey, Google grow blocks, rather Google revenue planning and analysis and then find us or Google revenue operations tooling and then find us, right? That's how people actually want to go about it. Nice plug there, by the way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's also the opposite approach, which is go by the fresh suit approach, right? So just let the others do the work and then you do fresh desk and yeah. you just copy the same thing, much more capital efficient. Yes. Yes. And it's, I would typically say that I'm also a fan of the first one and I would be, I would just be, I don't know, bullish enough to try it. But there is value to doing what Freshdesk is doing. A thousand percent. No, I think it's two fundamentally different business models, actually, or startup models, I just say it like that. Number one is you go into, you want to be an innovator, right? Kind of creating a whole new thing, whether that becomes a category up to you, but a whole new thing. Great about it is you're going to be the first one creating software, so there's no additional expectations in the market, so you can kind of sell from day one. Bad is... You need to create all of that demand yourself. The opposite is uh, you go into an existing category, create a me too with a twist product. Bad about that is you need to catch up on the software side to a degree to what someone else is having to be even a viable contender, even with like discounts and all of that jazz. Good is you don't need to tell everyone what a CRM is, you know, your new category or you need to... You know, you can tap into Google, get a lot of CRM searches and, and so forth. You don't need to sit down and, you know, do all of that educational work in order to achieve it. So actually, this is kind of the two predominant motions I see on the startup side. You either go in with a completely new, but we're fucked on the demand gen, or it's, you know, something existing with a twist. And then you kind of need to build a lot of software in order to get to a competitive space. I would say that that's a skill in itself, though. If I'm looking at what Fresh Suite has done. Yeah. And I'm not entirely familiar with everything, but I know that even we as Project A have dabbled in fresh sales recently. Yeah. And I found it to be not as bad as you might think. And because obviously there's what they did is they just copied Salesforce in, in cheaper and, and maybe sort of green and blackish, if, yeah. if that's a yeah. recent color. And yes, nothing is as good as Salesforce's, but they became quite good at just copying what's out there. And it's yeah, not no. that many others have not tried and failed horribly uh, or just, I mean, I'm... There's a couple tools out there that are trying basically to copy Salesforce and not achieving it. Uh, and the same for Zendesk. So the fact alone that they managed to copy that to such a degree in such a capital efficient way is already quite the achievement. No, I th so I think there's some skill in being the second or third mover and then just executing way harder than than the other ones. And that's also where this whole saying comes from. What is it? The innovators are the ending up with the arrows in their backs or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> the trailblazers, you know. I think you have to research that one again because I don't know that one. Okay, so what's your number two? So obviously this is an episode that might uh, offend some people. So I'm not going to precurse everything with, with this might be offensive or not. I think most leaders, especially in the commercial area, severely overestimate their ability to translate their strategy to execution. Yeah. And severely underestimate and also forget how hard it is to execute. And I see this, sadly, more, much more often than I would like. And I see this in a lot of leaders who they come up with all sorts of great new ideas, maybe even after they've done the 
be a physicist of your own company thing. And they put it onto great slides. The idea is amazing. It's exactly what's needed. The funnel is, needs to be reworked, new channels, all that. But then, or maybe a new CRM, for example. But then they severely underestimate how hard it really is to do that. And they sort of all forget because that's where they came from. Mm-hmm. They forget the work that goes into it. And so as, as an example, so I had this recently with a company of ours uh, where I said, it's not just about doing the thing, right? Because on paper, it looks easy. It's like, okay, implement this new funnel, right? Well, there's much more that goes into it. What, what does it mean to implement a funnel? It's not just create the slide where there's five new funnel steps. It means that now you have to go and recreate all the meetings or create new meetings. It means that people need to be aligned. You need to talk to marketing. There's a lot that goes into that. Maybe marketing won't like it. It means that needs to be built into new reports, the new KPIs that need to be worked out. It means that maybe the even the goals for the salespeople need to be reworked. There's probably an iterative approach to that where people won't get it immediately. So you mm-hmm. might have to do that two, three, four times. Maybe the forecasting meeting needs to be reworked. So actually the simple thing where maybe a CRO tells their head of sales, hey, just implement this funnel. It might take three months until actually that funnel is implemented. And that's where people just go wrong because they think on their roadmap is like implement a funnel is like a one-week activity. It's probably a three-month thing. Yeah. So this is where my wonderful split role comes in. Me, the professor that looks over the shoulder of other customers of ours or other companies and like, ah, you know, they could be doing this better. And me as being the same moron myself. And yeah, so this whole thing about wishful thinking and, you know, underestimation of, you know, capability, it's totally the thing, by the way. And it's extremely difficult to escape that. I think even in some cases for us and, you know, not necessarily talking about rolling out a new funnel or a new tool or something like that, but, you know, getting with a product to X, getting with a sales site to X. These are all things where you're like, hey, I know exactly how it needs to be done. And sure, you know, that that should be doable within that time frame. And then once you combine that with all the other chaos that's happening around you, you know, things just push out. They just keep pushing out. And it's a major frustration of mine operationally, actually. But it's also one of those truisms where I got to say to challenge you, okay, how's that actionable? Just telling people that, oh, you overestimate, you know, underestimate all the time. How can you escape that, that bias, that, that problem? I think it's really actionable because if you're really aware of that, you have to start making much harder choices on what it is that you're attempting and what's not. Yeah. And you're going you're going to go really hard at actually giving them a chance to thrive. Because, wow. and so this is not a point in itself, but I think I really am quite sick with this 80-20 approach <laughs> that every leader has. Yeah. It's like, oh, just get it done, just get it done quickly. And it's not because of a I would say ethical or moral approach or I'm like, oh no, do you need to go hard or you go like all in or go nothing? It's more about the fact that most of the time 80-20 just fails because you don't allot it enough time and you don't allot it enough resources to even be successful in the the first place. And so what you're doing is, yes, you're doing six things 80-20 and maybe one of them is successful because they were doomed to fail from the beginning. Yes, on that one. So I have a very strong opinion on this actually. So obviously 80-20 totally makes sense, blah, blah, blah. But and this is something I learned working with the acquiring company of my last company. So it was Zero, these the accounting software. And they basically, you know, I don't think that they say 80-20 is bad. But what they're basically saying is, and specifically for product and for go-to-market, every moron out there can do 80-20. Yeah. You know, 80-20 is not a competitive mode at all, which means that if you want to build a standout product in the market, you need to go to 95%. You need to go to 96%. You know, 
and it's super theoretical still between 95 and 100. What the fuck does that mean? But, you know, you need to spend the time to create something that actually generates value on the product side. And I think you can 100% also translate that to the go-to-market side, right? If you invest 80-20, and again, 80% of the value for 20% of the resources, that's kind of the whole idea here. If you do that approach with outbound or with any new motion, enterprise, whatever you want to put in place, guess what? It's going to fucking fail, yeah. right? And and you're going to put in those 20% and then you're going to put in 40% because you're going to push it out a little bit and then it's like, ah, it didn't work, let's kill it. You would have been better off to not even start in the first place. Yes. And even worse is that maybe you might disregard a very viable channel or a very viable market approach, marketing approach, yeah. just because you never gave it a fair chance. Yeah. And so my whole argument here, and by the way, another classic is CRM. So how many... How many, I mean, nowadays it's gotten a bit better, but like, let's say five years ago, the horror stories that people were just hushing around in Berlin about like how Salesforce is this horrible CRM tool is like, because their founder friend told them that they botched a six month implementation. Well, you just didn't do it right. Like, sorry to break it to you, because if you do it right, it's going to be better than everything no, else you're hey, going to have. No, hey, hey, I put my best account executive on the project. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you got to do things right. And yeah. and if you're not prepared to do it, then don't. And and so my, my whole point here is to make it actionable again. The things that I see actually working and that everyone's trying to avoid is plan better, make a coherent set of actions that sort of fits together and have a much longer planning horizon mm. where you're really pushing things through. So don't go, we need to change the funnel three times a year. Do it once, think about it with your whole leadership. Do a nice project where really you, you think about project management, you think about the whole strategic approach to things, how that will implement everything, everything else around it. Make a coherent approach to it and try it for a year or two. Yeah. But everyone's scared of that because they might be wrong. And so I think really what it comes down to here, and I'm going to piss some people off again here, the reason everyone goes by 80-20 is not because it's really the best approach, but that's what everyone tells you because they want to avoid analysis by paralysis by analysis because they mm. want to be fast. That's not the reason. The reason they do 80-20 is because they're insecure. They're insecure about not knowing what to do, and so they're not really willing to bet. They're not confident enough to bet on an, on an approach for a year or two and are just trying 10 different things at the same time. Well, I can attest to that, both from myself but also from what I'm seeing. I don't think anyone would say like, yep, it, that's it. I'm insecure. I think a lot of times also like, do I want to take this risk? Do I want to take this bet? You know, how how sure am I about this? And what are the chances that we're going to change it anyway in like six months from now? Because we learned something that I didn't know now. And this is where some of that conflicts with, you know, something that's almost like an agile approach to this whole problem, right? Because yeah, you are going to find out things in a little while from now that might kind of kill some of those decisions that you made. And I think that's true early on. I think it's lesser so true later on, right? So once you're crossing the 10 million mark in ARR, I think a lot of things, at least in B2B, I'm not sure B2C, I think you know this a little bit better than I do, but a lot of things start falling into place and the the outliers and the variants of everything happening is just, it's going to be a bit more squeezed around. I would say though, and even that is accounted for, plan ahead for the fact that you will have to change your approach. So, you have to also know that you're going to have to change channels and that your hypothesis is wrong, but you can plan for this in advance. Yeah. My last one is that tools and RevOps, to some extent, are actually a revenue creator and they're not sort of a, a, a eater of money if you're doing it right. Okay, let tell me more about that. And this is really the, um, you know, RevOps, sales ops, some of those concepts, right? Really kind of supporting, helping the uh, revenue teams to, you know, 
get their job done faster. So it's really like a supporting role in many cases. And and it starts out with, oh, you know, I need to roll out Salesforce or my CM is a mess. I need someone to help me fix it. Then, oops, we have all this wonderful data. We need a report and so forth, right? So kind of that that whole thing builds out. So I'd be really interested in how you see revenue operations and or sales operations be a revenue driver versus just in CRM admin. Yes. So there is many approaches of looking at this. Obviously, you could be looking at really this evolution into more revenue ops, more of a revenue view on things in general. I think this is probably going to be very much by what your view is on things. But really, and I agree with that one most likely, but the basic thing is sales ops, and to some extent the things that sales ops does, such as very strongly also CRM, but also many other things. And we might go into that a bit later on, but sales ops in itself is people, data, tech, and yeah. and processes. Working on these things is going to add some sort of constant to the efficiency of every single salesperson. Otherwise, you wouldn't do them. And there is ways to do these things that either, either prevent people from, from losing efficiency or gain efficiency. And a very simple example on that is enablement, such as, for example, documentation, better, better sales documentation, but also brochures, anything that you can give and put into the hands of people, but also simple things such as implementing a gong where people can just do more sales calls in themselves, right? So these are typically hard, quick to understand, maybe also things such as coaching, training, onboarding, uh, ramp up, uh, shortening, all these things. Yes, so that increases efficiency of salespeople. Hmm. But then really (laughs) CRM in itself, and it's really difficult to me to understand how people can forget that. The fact alone that a CRM exists is what differentiates us from running around with notebooks and just having like a Rolodex and carrying that around constantly and doing cold calls by that. Mm. And so the pure amount of information that a single salesperson can work on at any given time and sort of outsourcing their brain is a huge efficiency lever. And so the only question is when you do it well, you can make it much more efficient or you can make it much less efficient. But yeah. How can you how can you think that it's probably it's best to go back to the Stone Age and then have a sales book in your hand? No, absolutely. And I think kind of one example just to tie the tie the bow a little bit, right? So my one of my first first points was quota doesn't equal revenue. You know, it's really about opportunities coming in and quota to close it, right? Kind of really think about this balancing out. And now kind of taking this into this context of let's just take this boring CRM piece here. When you think about it, the limitation is actually not on how much revenue a person can close. The limitation is actually on how many concurrent sales processes can they run. That is actually the limitation, right? And if you now have a CRM, you know, you need to have kind of the belief that if it's being used and set up right, that a salesperson can run more sales processes at the same time without losing you know, dropping the ball, basically, compared to the Rolodex and the Notepad, right? That is really kind of the way to think about it. And if this is true, what you can do then is that each sales rep will probably be able to close a deal or two more per quarter, whatever that might mean for you. That might mean that you can increase quotas after you've proven this a couple of times. That might mean that the whole ratio of OTE to, you know, how much target, how much revenue close is going to improve and so forth, right? So there are a lot, this is just one example, I feel, kind of in the sales ops world where sales operations is actually, and this is one of my topics I'm going to think about recently, is like, how can you create a rev ops influenced pipeline metric? 
you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and that would be one of those, right? Kind of, okay, you know, we achieved this. We now kind of are more efficient in how we run those deals for whatever reason. And therefore, there's more money either saved in terms of cost or more money generated. Okay. So let's see where we end up with this episode here. We can probably, you know, kind of cut this here now and, you know, keep... By the way, each of these topics is its own episode. Yeah. You know, now that I'm thinking about it. You can still do those later on, right? I think so, too. I think so, too. So this was really a kind of a quick mini intro into, you know, popping open rules in my brain here a little bit. And I think we will continue on the same vein going forward. So I hope you... Hope everyone, you know, listening enjoyed it a lot. And thanks for spending the time with me. Thanks for being here, Tony. Wonderful. Bye. Bye.